I have the blessing of showing you Christ through the word this morning. This message has really made an impact in my heart, and I pray that the Lord will also um, will make you richer as a result of hearing the word this morning. Many of you will recall that back in March of this year, a 19-year-old boy named Salvador Ramos stormed into Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, and he opened fire on teachers and students. The parents in the nearby homes hear gunshots blaring and sirens streaming down the street. Their instinct is to fear for their child, so they rush to the school. When they arrive, they are met by officers preventing anyone from entering the school. Videos taken with cell phones show some parents pleading with the officers to help their child as they are falling to the ground in powerlessness. The videos don't do justice to the desperation the parents really felt. The officers saved many children and teachers that day, but for the 19 children, these parents experienced a heartbreaking disappointment. In the aftermath of this mass shooting, politicians and advocacy groups took to the world stage to propose solutions to prevent this act of evil from happening again. Some are calling for the resignation of the sheriff. Others are exploiting these events to promote their party's agenda. While something should be done, this act of evil reveals something far more desperate. In our society today, we need something more than progressive gun control policies or police reform. Our society needs, our children need, a power that is trustworthy, faithful, and true. Perhaps you have or know someone who has a child in the clutches of Satan that desperately needs help. I am here to remind you that at the center of our faith stands Jesus Christ. He is the all-powerful Son of God. We can trust him in the midst of our desperate situations in life. He is the one who is trustworthy, faithful, and true. But there is an obstacle that stands in the way of us getting the help from him that we need. And that obstacle is our struggle with unbelief. Today, we will observe a desperate dad who comes to Jesus for help to deliver his only son from demonic torment, but he struggles with his unbelief. Like the parents in Uvalde, Texas, the dad also experiences a heartbreaking disappointment at the hand of Jesus' disciples, no less. We will listen to Jesus' words and observe what he has to say about their unbelief. There is a confession in this story that reveals our struggle with unbelief, and it one that you may be familiar with. 
It comes when the dad of our narrative speaking to Jesus cries out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I think everyone has prayed or thought that way at some time in their life, perhaps in moments of desperation. I believe it will serve to point us to how we overcome this obstacle of unbelief. If you have your Bible, turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. As you are turning to your Bible, allow me to take a moment just to orient you to the Gospel of Mark, because I really think it is um, a fascinating Gospel. Mark's Gospel is a gripping retelling of the life of Christ. The words he uses, he, uh, what he chooses to use are permeated with emotion and immediacy. He describes stories with a vividness the other Gospels may not provide. Mark's main purpose is to win Christians to the faith in light of persecutions from Roman government. To do this, he portrays Christ as the one who has the power over everything they fear. That is, he is in control in the midst of those desperate situations in life. And no doubt, our passage echoes this same theme. Rather than read the entire story at one time, I want to let the story unfold for us, verse by verse, because it truly is an amazing story. You can give the title of this message, Jesus Helps a Desperate Dad. Jesus Helps a Desperate Dad. And we will observe five acts of Jesus, which results in a miraculous delivery for a father and his son. In this passage, directly before ours, Mark 9, 2 through 13, Peter, James, and John have a mountaintop experience with Jesus where he is transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah appeared and conversed with Jesus. God declared in verse 7, This is my son who I love. Listen to him. This was an amazing declaration by God to the power and authority of Jesus. Meanwhile, life is going on at the bottom of the mountain where Jesus' other nine disciples are waiting. Now observe what Jesus, Peter, James, and John see as they descend from this mountaintop experience. Verse 14 says, When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Verse 14 tells us that a crowd surrounds the disciples. Well, who is this crowd? Well, they are in Caesarea Philippi where villages surround the area. No doubt most of the crowd are from these villages. We do not know how this crowd formed, but we do know the ministry of, crowd, of Jesus drew immense crowds. But we do know the crowds of people would swarm to hear Jesus teach or to do a miracle. But they are not interested in being a disciple of Jesus. They wanted the thrill of Christ. They did not want to put their faith in Christ. Verse 14 also tells us that some scribes were arguing with them, speaking of the disciples. 
The scribes in ancient Israel were learned men whose business was to study the law, transcribe it, and write commentaries on it. But the scribes went beyond the interpretation of Scripture and added man-made traditions to what God has said. They often confronted Jesus with his doctrine, and each time they did, Jesus exposed their hypocrisy and made them look foolish. And here they are, taking advantage of Jesus' absence because they are seen arguing with the disciples. They are arguing with the disciples about something in our story, so we need to find out what it is. This leads to our first act of Jesus, which results in a miraculous delivery for this dad and his son. As you see in your notes there, number one, Jesus shows up in a dad's desperate situation. Jesus shows up in a dad's desperate situation. Observe what happens in verse 15. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running to greet him. Mark tells us three things about the crowd. One, they saw him. Two, they were amazed. And three, they began running to greet him. In other words, they leave the argument surrounding the disciples and the scribes and run to Jesus in amazement because they are expecting something astonishing. But they are in for a surprise. As they approach, Jesus does not give them something astonishing. He confronts them with a question. Observe verse 16 as the crowd meets Jesus. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? Verse 14 tells us the scribes were arguing with the disciples. And Jesus is saying here, he knows that they were contributing to the argument with the disciples. At this point, a desperate dad speaks up. Observe this dad's answer to Jesus' question in verse 17. And one from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with the spirit which makes him mute. Immediately, we learn a lot from this dad in this verse. Calling Jesus teacher reveals respect for Jesus and signifies that he heard of Jesus and believed him to be a master in Israel, known for his ability to teach and do miracles. The parallel account to this passage, Matthew 17, verse 14, records the dad coming to Jesus and falling on his knees. This act of prostration before Jesus signifies that this dad has reverence for Jesus and, and is desperate for him to do something. Observe verse 17 again. While this dad is on his knees, he says... I brought you my son, possessed with the spirit which makes him mute. The dad has brought his son to Jesus with the hope that Jesus could do something about his son being demon-possessed. The Greek word translated possessed means to hold. This dad is telling us that this demon has a hold on his son. Then 
Look at what the dad says. It makes him mute. In other words, the spirit has taken hold of the boy and deprived him of the power to speak. Continuing in describing his symptoms, the dad in verse 18 says, And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. The verbiage here at the beginning of verse 18, when the dad says, whenever, suggests that slamming to the ground, foaming, grindings, and stiffening were not continuous. It only occurred when the evil spirit seized him. The word to seize in verse 18 means to lay hold of as one's own. When the spirit seized the boy, it took him as if it were his own possession. What did it do when it took hold of the child? Verse 18 says, it slams him, made him foam at the mouth, grinds his teeth and stiffens him out. If this dad's discernment is correct, his son, if his son is possessed by a spirit, then it is not a good spirit. It is an evil spirit under the charge of Satan, unleashed from hell to take hold of his son. What a horrible, heartbreaking problem. And to compound this man's desperation, he was hoping to bring his child to Jesus. But Jesus was nowhere to be found. So the man thought he might get some help from Jesus' disciples who were at the bottom of the mountain. But listen to what Jesus says about his disciples. Listen to what the dad says to Jesus about his disciples at the end of verse 18. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not. Apparently, word was out that the disciples could cast out evil spirits too. So he asked the disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they could not. The Greek word for could not means that the disciples did not exert the power necessary to deliver the boy. Jesus gave the disciples the power and authority to cast out evil spirits. In fact, write down the reference Mark 6.13. That verse shows us the twelves casted out many demons. We will learn later why they could not in this case. But for now, we can see their inability to deliver the boy has contributed to making this dad's desperate situation worse. From this dad's statement in verse 18, we can now surmise why the scribes and the crowds were questioning the disciples. They were questioning them about their power to cast out evil spirits because the disciples had failed in this case. You know, it is no mystery that the church does not always act as she is expected to. Some of you may be coming from a church where the pastor or a leader failed to help you in the way that you had hoped. At Cornerstone, and I don't think the pastors mind me saying this, we can't guarantee that you won't experience disappointment here, 
But we can guarantee that we will point you to the master of the church, Jesus Christ, who will never disappoint you. Mark is not bashful here in capturing the disciples' failure because he wants us to see the work that Jesus needs to do in the heart of this dad and his disciples. This is the heartbreaking scene that Jesus has come upon, and it provokes an emotional response from him. And this leads to our second act of Jesus, which results in a miraculous delivery for this dad and his son. Number two, Jesus laments over the unbelief of his disciples. Jesus laments over the unbelief of his disciples. Listen to Jesus' words in verse 19. And he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation. This phrase, oh, unbelieving generation, is an interesting one. The word, oh, is an expression of, a, and of intense pain felt deeply. The word unbelieving simply means faithless. It is an act of not trusting. Commentaries are divided on who the word generation is referring to here. Based on what the little we know so far, we can consider that the crowd is behaving in a faithless way because they are questioning the disciples' power alongside the scribes. But it was the disciples' failure that warranted this rebuke from Jesus. So I believe this word generation is referring to the disciples. Putting it all together, we can say that Jesus is expressing, and an, um, he is outwardly expressing an inward pain he feels deeply when his disciples behave in a faithless way. And when you understand Jesus' history with these men, these disciples, we can understand a little why he is in pain. The disciples often do not grasp who Jesus is. They often do not realize that he is the authoritative son of God. Nor do they understand much of what he, what he says to them. He often asks them, where is thy faith? One of the many sufferings that Christ had to endure was the faithlessness of his disciples. It teaches us that there is pain in the heart of God when we behave in a faithless way. Oh, unbelieving generation, he says. Observe what else Jesus has to say in verse 19. He asks two questions. He asks, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear you? These are rhetorical questions embedded in a lament. Jesus is not requiring a verbal response here. He is expressing these questions out loud to force his listeners to consider the implications of the answer. So we will too. When Jesus, is, when Jesus laments, he first asks, how long shall I be with you? Underlying those words, with you, with you, it denotes a relationship of intimacy and fellowship. 
Jesus maintained a, a close relationship with these disciples more than the crowd and more than the scribes, quite naturally. Jesus was so faithful in being with these men, even in their failure. But their unbelief was enough to bring his soul to sadness. In the second question, in verse 19, he says, How long am I to bear you? Or bear with you? Bear with gives the picture of, of holding oneself up under a load to support another. It's, it, it speaks of an enduring suffering. This indicates that their spiritual dullness was not only a, a heavy load to the Lord, but it was a suffering in which he had to endure. Now, as hard as Jesus' words would have been for the disciples to hear, let's pay attention to what he does not say. He does not say, I'm giving up on you. He does not say, I'm done with you. That's grace. In fact, the rhetorical questions Jesus does ask implies that he wants them to consider how much he does bear with them, how much he does endure with them. And the truth is that he will endure with them until his time comes to be crucified. And there are times where I know I have failed my Savior or my family with my faithlessness. And there is an inexpressible pain in my heart. But I am also swept away by the grace of God when I remember that he never gives up on me. And he never will. Husbands and wives, don't give up on your spouse when they behave in a faithless way. Parents, don't give up on your children when they behave in a faithless way. Because Christ doesn't give up on you, and he never will. In fact, at this point in our story, Jesus does not give up on the situation. Instead, he moves to take on this dad's problem, which leads to our third act of Jesus, which results in a miraculous delivery for this dad and his son. Number three, Jesus enters into the dad's desperate situation regarding his son. Jesus enters into the dad's desperate situation regarding his son. Observe Jesus' command at the end of verse 19. Jesus says, bring him to me. Jesus asks for the boy because he is taking it upon his shoulders to correct the situation. This statement, bring him to me, reminds us that no matter, no matter how bad our situation gets, there is no case that is too tough for Christ. There is no case so bad that cannot be brought to him. Bring him to me, he says. Once Jesus delivers this command, here Mark, not, um, observe what he has to say in verse 20. They brought the boy to him. And when he, the boy, saw him, Jesus, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, falling to the ground, 
he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Mark is intentional with showing us that it was upon seeing Jesus that the evil spirit convulsed the boy. The evil spirit does this because it knew its time for tormenting the boy had come to an end. It knew that Jesus would prevail. So in one last ditch effort, it shows this boy, it shows, uh, throws this boy into a fit, confronting Jesus with this awful scene of this boy rolling on the ground, convulsing and foaming at the mouth. Jesus' response to seeing this evil spirit is quite amazing. Observe verse 21. And he asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? Here this evil spirit is causing this boy to convulse and roll on the ground, which would be quite frightening to many of us. But to Jesus, Jesus doesn't panic. Though our desperate situations cause us to worry, we have a Savior who is never worried. He is always in control. In our passage, Jesus simply asks a question. He asks, how long has this been happening to him? The dad's response in verse 21 saying, from childhood, from childhood, indicating that this has that he has been dealing with his son's demonic possession for the entire life of his son. But the thing is, though, Jesus is fully omniscient. He knows this dad has been carrying this heavy burden for his son for a long time. Why ask the question? He wants this dad to see his compassion. He wants this dad to see that he can cast his heavy burden onto him. And this dad now senses that Jesus' compassion and sees it as an invitation to share more. Observe what else the dad tells Jesus. He tells Jesus that his spirit has been, uh, in verse 22, he says, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into water, to destroy him. It threw him into fire and water. John MacArthur writes that, quote, campfires were everywhere because they were used for cooking and staying warm. The source of water was derived from wells, so there were pools of water everywhere. The evil spirit would smash him into campfires and throwing him into water wells to drown him, end quote. This boy likely has burns and scars all over his body. But make no mistake about it, the evil spirit wasn't trying to scare him or to scar him. The dad tells us in verse 22, it was trying to destroy him, suggesting that these events had greater malicious intent. Today in our society, there is an unhealthy error about Satan and his evil spirits. They are not portrayed as having malicious intent. 
They are portrayed as cartoon characters and comic figures. I remember I had a friend in college that likened the image of Satan in hell to a bartender standing in a warm room handing out cold beers. This is not what the Bible says, though. The Bible, in describing Satan in 1 Peter 5.8, portrays Satan as one that prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Parents, this means that when you rise out of your bed in the morning, you are entering a spiritual battlefield for the heart and mind of your children against an opponent that has malicious intent. We are too weak to tame this enemy. That is, we cannot subdue him by mere human means. A spiritual enemy must be met with a greater spiritual power. But at this point in our story, this dad doubts that Jesus is more powerful than this evil spirit. Observe the middle of verse 22. The dad says, But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. In this verse, the dad says, If you can. The dad believed that Jesus was compassionate and he wants his help. But he is doubtful about Jesus' power. The Greek word for can in this phrase, if you can, is dunamai, which is where we get our English word dynamite. It references someone's ability to be strong in power. In other words, he doubts that Jesus is able to exert the power necessary to deliver the boy. Here, this dad is face-to-face with God incarnate, and he doubts. But you know what? He came to Jesus nonetheless. Jesus does not reject his request because he doubts. Instead, Jesus moves closer to this dad and teaches him something that will serve to deepen his understanding of the problem. This brings us to the fourth act of Jesus, which results in a miraculous delivery for this dad and his son. Number four, Jesus addresses the dad's own problem with unbelief. Jesus addresses the dad's own problem with unbelief. Observe Jesus' response in verse 23. And he said to them, If you can Let's stop right there. Jesus gently reproves this dad's doubt by saying, if you can. So when the dad says in verse 22, if you can, referencing Jesus's power, Jesus references his power here in verse 23. Jesus in essence is saying, you say if you can to me. But my power is not in question. Jesus is the Son of God. He is always all-powerful. His power is never in question. Observe what else Jesus has to say to this dad in verse 23. 
Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. There are a lot of things to grapple with in this verse, but for the sake of time, let's limit ourselves to just a couple observations that I believe Mark wants us to know. And the first thing is this, that Jesus is telling this dad that his son's deliverance is connected to his faith. So when Jesus says all things are possible to him who believes, he is laying down a challenge for this dad to believe. Certainly, Jesus could save this boy without his faith. But instead, he wants to raise this dad from the ash heap of unbelief to a blazing fire of faith. So he says, all things are possible to him that believes. The second thing I think Mark wants us to know is that Jesus is the object of faith and the power source from which the delivery of his son will come. There is no inherent power in this dad's faith apart from its source. All things are possible to him that believes, he says. Well, believes in what or who? Believes in me, believes in Jesus. In essence, Jesus says, when you believe in the power of God in Christ, you will not say, if you can, you will say, because you can. All things are possible to him who believes, Jesus says. With that statement, Christ has lit this dad's earnestness for faith on fire. Observe this dad's response to Jesus' teaching in verse 24. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. The dad immediately cried out. He didn't hesitate or ponder. Jesus' words were enough for him. This was a, an urgent, loud scream conveying a deep emotion. And notice what he cries out. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. This is quite a paradoxical statement. I think there is still a lot I need to understand about this verse. But I think there are a couple things for sure we can know. First, he says, I do believe. Here, he professes faith in Christ. The dad came to Jesus for necessary help for his son, but Christ was working to give him more than what he came there for. He gave him faith. But then he says, help my unbelief. As soon as his dad believed, he became alarmed at how consuming and dreadful unbelief was. He saw the depth of unbelief. And we can attest to this, right? Think back for a moment. When you weren't a Christian, you were not conscious of your unbelief. You didn't really give it much thought, did you? 
But it was when you received faith in Christ where you became aware of the depth of your unbelief. Charles Spurgeon, preaching on this sermon, said, quote, When a man gets real faith in Jesus Christ, he shudders and he thinks how long he has lived in unbelief. And he realizes how much of unbelief is still mixed with his belief. End quote. This dad's profession of belief and confession of unbelief, as perplexing as it is, captures our inward struggle of faith. But we are not left with just a perplexing statement that sounds powerful. In this passage, we have a hint at what we can do when we are aware of this deficiency. Notice this dad's prayer to Jesus. It was not for his child, nor was it for his disciples to step up their game. It was concerning his own unbelief. Help my unbelief, he prays. Though this dad's desperate situation and disappointments are real, he was awakened to the desper- his own desperate condition. He confessed it as his unbelief to Jesus, hoping that Jesus could take pity on the frailty of his faith. He directed his desperate case to Christ. And there are times when I have shared the gospel with a neighbor or a coworker. And it seemed like they were not awakened to their sense of their need for Christ. Then there were other times when I've shared the gospel and they seemed to desire something more. But they seek satisfaction in all the wrong places and in the wrong way. To this dad's credit, though, he goes a couple steps further than they did. He knew his desperate need, and he directed all of his energies to Christ. And we can do the same thing. This dad's faith was not a great faith. It was about the size of a mustard seed. But oh, how great our Savior is, that he will not disregard even our flawed faith or our faltering prayer for help. Even better, he answers to even small, struggling faith. Which brings us to our fifth and final act of Jesus, which results in a miraculous delivery for a dad and his son. Number five, Jesus delivers the dad from demonic torment. Jesus delivers the dad's son from demonic torment. Observe verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit. While conversing with this dad, Jesus sees a crowd rapidly amassing, probably for the sole purpose of seeing some sensational miracle be performed. And it seems that Jesus accelerates his deliverance of the boy from the, before the crowd could get too large. Evidently, Jesus did not want to perform this miracle in front of a larger crowd. 
There are many today who claim to have the power to heal and nay to kill for a crowd like this. They say to each other, let the crowds fully gather. Then, then we will amaze them with what we can do. But this is not the way Jesus thinks. Wanting to spare this dad and his son from further embarrassment, Jesus hastens to deliver the boy before too many people gather. Next, Jesus exercises amazing power and authority over the evil spirit. Observe what Jesus does in the middle of verse 25. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And we learn a few things here from this exorcism. Jesus calls it a deaf and mute spirit. Jesus calls it by a name associated with the affliction that it caused the boy. It also confirms that what the dad told us earlier is also true. It is, in fact, a spirit in the boy that has caused him to be mute. Jesus clarifies and adds that the spirit made him deaf also. Verse 25 also shows us that Jesus powerfully exercised authority over the demons, commanding them what to do and they must obey. Observe what happens next to the boy in verse 26. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. He's dead. In verse 26, we are told what happened after Jesus rebukes and commands the spirit to leave. The deaf and mute spirit obeys Jesus, but not without throwing a violent tantrum on his way out. This term, crying out in verse 26, is the same word used to describe the dad's cry. It was a loud, piercing cry. This dad's cry was a cry of a profession of faith mixed with doubt in Christ. But for this evil spirit, it was a cry of fury against Christ. But then, at an instant, the convulsing stopped, and the boy is left lying perfectly still. So much like a corpse that they said he was dead. On the spirit's exit, it leaves the boy in a death-like condition, causing those around to think he was dead. In this exact moment, it looks like Jesus has made the situation worse. Was this dad's proclamation of faith in Jesus all for nothing? What a crazy first test of this man's faith to trust in the power of Christ rather than the empirical evidence of the moment. Observe verse 27, where we will see what Jesus does with this boy. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. 
there are some contrasts to note here of what the evil spirit did to the boy over the course of this narrative and what Jesus does here in verse 27. In verse 18, we learn the evil spirit took hold of him to slam him to the ground. But when Jesus took hold of him, he raised him up. In verse 17, we learn the evil spirit took this boy's childhood from him. And this dad simply wanted his son back. Luke 9, verse 42, the parallel count to this story, tells us Jesus gave the boy back to his dad alive. The dispelling of this deaf and mute spirit also suggests that the boy's ability to speak and to hear were restored too. Despite this dad's struggle of faith, Jesus saves his son from demonic torment and gave him back into his dad's arm alive. That is power. As a postscript, Mark wants us to know one more detail about this story. He wants us to know one important lesson that Jesus' disciples learned from this experience. Observe what happens in verse 28. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? This is a great question and one that everyone should be asking. Listen to Jesus' answer in verse 29. And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Some of your English versions have Jesus saying something like, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer and fasting. And adding the words fasting at the end of that. There are actually some Greek manuscripts that have the word fasting. But the oldest and best manuscripts do not have these extra words there. They simply have Jesus saying to his disciples, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So this is where we will keep our focus this morning. But notice, first of all, how Jesus speaks of this kind. What he means is this kind of evil spirit. This word kind speaks of a class of demon and indicates that this class of demon is particularly difficult to remove from a person. The evil spirit in our passage was stubborn and refused to come out at the disciples' command. We also know it was a deaf and mute spirit, a very violent spirit, and it had malicious intent to destroy Next, Jesus introduces prayer at the end of verse 29, saying, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Which means that Jesus' disciples needed to pray to successfully cast out the demon. What does this mean? We already discussed how Christ gave them the power to cast out many demons. And in fact, they had casted out many demons 
prior to this situation. So the disciples would have approached this dad's situation under the notion that Christ had given them power. The fact that they casted out demons previously would have made them confident to do so. They probably approached the situation thinking like, hey, we got this. But since this kind of demon was particularly difficult, they probably failed in their first attempt. Then they probably kept attempting to command the demon to come out over and over again, but they kept failing. With each failure, their faith was weakened, and it seemed they never resorted to prayer. And here in verse 29, Jesus is teaching them that, yes, you have the power to cast out demons, but it is not an absolute power. Only God has absolute power. You must faithfully walk in dependence on the power of God to carry out the task. And you need to pray him, pray to him, so that you can do that. This lesson challenges us, too. Life's desperate situations have a way of humbling us, don't they? They have a way of revealing to us our need to always depend on God in prayer. It reminds us that no matter how much good we have done in the name of Christ, we never advance beyond our need to pray and to commune with God. We began this message hearing of the desperate parents in Uvalde, Texas. That event, and like many others in our world, is a reflection of the spiritual reality that we face as parents with our children every day. There is a spiritual enemy that wants to destroy them by keeping them from Christ. This passage reminds us that Christ is more powerful. So, if you have a child drifting from the truth and in the clutches of the evil one, keep crying out to the Lord on their behalf and let Christ do a good work in you and grow your faith as you do so. And whatever you do, don't let what Satan is doing in the life of your children Cause your faith in Christ to diminish. This narrative also reminds us that unbelief is no respecter for how long or how intimately you know Christ. You can know Christ for several years like these disciples, or you can be new to the faith like this dad. The truth is, we all struggle with unbelief. This is the inward struggle of faith that we must take to God in prayer. When I am aware of my unbelief, I often find myself following this dad's example. I own it, and I immediately confess it as a sin because it is a wrong attitude to have towards God. On the other side of this confession, 
I am filled with God's grace and power to face all the things that are before me. I encourage you to follow this example as well. One of the remarkable things I like about this story is despite this dad's struggle of faith, Christ used his faith to save his son. I can't, I can't make my three boys believe. But I have seen my prayer life and my faith energized most at the awareness that God can use me to point my children to Christ. Parents, if you do anything, point your children to Christ because he has the power to save. If you do not have a personal relationship with God, I want to ask you a couple of questions before I pray. Do you believe that your sin separates you from God? Are you aware that you can't make yourself believe? If you still have doubts about him, do you believe that God can give you faith? Lay aside the rags of unbelief and clothe yourself in the power of Christ. Cry out to God, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Believers, if you confess your unbelief and depend on the power of God in Christ, then you will find grace. You will find wisdom. You will find power over everything you need to do according to his will. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are in a desperate state. Our unbelief runs deep, O Lord. Satan binds our minds towards hopelessness and powerlessness in moments of desperation. Our children are under a constant assault from the enemy. But there is a grace, there is a power that we hear this morning resounding through your faithful word. And it resounds forth in the person of Jesus Christ. Awaken our hearts to our unbelief. O Lord, I pray, and help us to obey this call and run to receive nourishment from Christ. Wash our souls from the deep wounds of unbelief. Drive out Satan and all the influences of evil on the hearts and minds of our children and give them faith, O oh Lord. We fall at your knees. We fall at your feet, O oh God. And into your compassionate arms, Lord, we rest. Wrap us in the righteousness of Jesus, who is our everything. Amen.